Labels are a divisive subject. When used inappropriately, they have the power to misrepresent and dehumanize people. As the mother of a child with autism, I have seen numerous instances in which hurtful or inaccurate labels have been applied to my daughter. Yet, there are times when using accurate labels can dramatically improve the lives of those with autism. The specific label I'm thinking of is profound autism, and it's one being embraced by an increasing number of autism researchers and advocates. That was Alison Singer reading from her first opinion essay, Labels Can Harm, But They Can Also Help, See Profound Autism. I'll bring you our conversation after a word about STAT+. If you enjoy the First Opinion podcast, you can get even more coverage from STAT with a STAT Plus subscription. STAT Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories every day from our award-winning team. As a special thank you for listening to the podcast, you can get 10% off a STAT Plus subscription by using the code POD. That's P. O-D, all uppercase. To subscribe to Stat Plus, visit statnews.com slash subscribe and use the pod code there. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Skerritt, editor of First Opinion, STAT's platform for essays written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative opinions and perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Allison. Thanks for inviting me. Tell me about your daughter, Jody. When, when did you become aware that she might have a developmental difference? So my, my daughter, Jody had issues from the time she was born. Um, when she was just an infant, she was diagnosed originally with colic, extreme colic, extended colic. I've never seen colic quite like this. <laughs> she, she really had difficulties from the time she was born. And, and back then I, you know, didn't really know anything. She was my first child. So I didn't know anything about developmental milestones or how children should be behaving. I just thought I was having difficulty adjusting to being a new mom and that these kind of things would be a learning experience for both of us. I had no idea that some of the early signs that she was showing, even as an infant, would were early signs of autism spectrum disorder. That must have been a difficult realization for you. Actually, when she was diagnosed with autism, it, it almost came as a relief because then I felt like, okay, she has something that's diagnosed as a medical condition, so there must be interventions. There must be doctors who can help us. Um, but unfortunately, there really weren't. Autism was so misunderstood, and at that point, still a, a rare disorder, uh, that it was it was quite difficult finding appropriate interventions for her and getting her into the types of supported school environment that she that she needed to be in. So you wrote you wrote that you grew up with a brother with autism. Was that in a different era for autism? 
Oh, that was a completely different time. My brother was diagnosed back in the 1960s uh, with autism when at that time autism was one in 10,000. And back then we thought autism was the result of bad parenting. My mom was told that my brother was autistic because she was a bad mother. She was called a refrigerator mother, too cold to properly bond with a child. And she was told that the best thing she could do would be to send my brother to an institution and try harder with her next child who I was, I was the next child, but I mean, anyone who knows my mother knows that she's not going to take something like that lying down. She found probably the only uh, study of autism that was taking place in New York city back then. Um, and she got my brother enrolled, but getting him enrolled in that study meant that he actually had to live as an inpatient at Bellevue hospital. Um, he was enrolled in that study um, while he was, four and five. And after that, he, um, the staff there worked with my mom to get him placed into the best facility at the time. And unfortunately, that was Willowbrook. Um, and I think we all know that Willowbrook is now symbolic of the absolute worst uh, way of the absolute worst environment for anyone, let alone someone with a developmental disorder. But fortunately, we have come a long way uh, since the time when we institutionalized our, our children with autism. Now, children with autism live at home. They can receive good supports and services, better supports and services, certainly than anything that was available back then when there truly was nothing. I recall Willowbrook from the news, but not very concretely. Can you just um, describe it for a second or, or what what the problems were? Well, the problems were that it was completely understaffed. The residents who lived there were completely ignored. They were living in squalor. The place was just a total mess. No one received any services, interventions, or medical attention of, of any kind. And, and I can recall going to visit my brother uh, in Willowbrook when I was just a small kid. And really visiting him meant my sitting in the in the family room. Um, and I remember um, there was a black and white television mounted sort of up in the corner of the of the visitor's room. And it was always tuned to, I think it was Channel 11 in New York City. So it was either getting Abbott and Costello or the New York Mets. <laughs> um, and I just remember the whole place always smelled like ammonia and you would hear people screaming and moaning. And, and as... As a child, I remember just begging my mother not to make me go. Uh, and, and that was just to the visitor's room. I can't even imagine what my brother's experience was like living there. But I think my mother recognized that very quickly. And he was he was there for a very short time um, until we actually had to move out of New York City um, so that he could be placed in, in, a different, in a different center. That must have been hard for you and your mother and your brother. I think it was hard for everyone. And I think, you know, one of the things that's changed since then is that we didn't talk about it. There was so much stigma associated with the diagnosis of autism because of the erroneous belief that it was caused by bad mothering um, that we never talked about it. And I think that that still has ramifications today. I think there are still families all over the world who are reluctant to to share the fact that they have a child with a developmental disability because there's still so much stigma associated with that. And that that mother diagnosis must have shattered many women. And and I think we're still living with the repercussions today. As as I said, there are still so many mothers who want anything but autism. When in fact, a diagnosis of autism. Uh, at least in in the United States, in in many cases, does lead to 
good uh, interventions and services. And we know from the research that early intervention is the best weapon we have against the debilitating symptoms of autism. Do you think you learned some of your advocacy skills from your mom? I definitely learned advocacy skills from my mom. I mean, my, my mom is a, is a fierce advocate, and she was part of a group uh, early in, in the 1970s that was uh, fighting for the rights of, of people with autism and um, making starting walkathons to raise money. And she was, she was definitely a fierce advocate, and she still is today. You know, for years, autism was a fairly narrowly defined diagnosis in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, often called the Bible of Psychiatry. That changed in 2013 when autism and Asperger's syndrome and several other conditions were collapsed into, quote, autism spectrum disorder. Was that helpful, harmful, or somewhere in between? I think it was harmful. I mean, the term autism now describes something that is so broad that it's it's really become meaningless. I mean, the phrase autism spectrum disorder is such a big tent term that the, the people under that tent have have almost nothing in common with each other. I mean, autism can mean that you have genius IQ or IQ below 50. It can mean that you are highly verbal or nonverbal. It can mean that you graduate from Harvard Law School, or it can mean, like in my daughter's case, that you exit from high school with a certificate of participation. So, you know, if we're going to be able to personalize our approach to care uh, the way we need to, and treat each person as an individual, then I believe we need terminology and language that are specific and meaningful. Right now, everyone is lumped together as having autism spectrum disorder. And I also think that, you know, to the broader public, the word autism has now come to describe only the more verbal, highly skilled more visible end of the autism spectrum because those individuals are the ones who are able to have a voice and represent themselves at policymaking meetings and appear in the media. So on these television shows like The Good Doctor, House, um, The Big Bang Theory, Love on the Spectrum, Atypical, The New Normal, I could go on and on, but these shows are broadcasting this very high-functioning brand of autism and only this brand of autism to the world. And the result is that autistic people like my daughter and my brother, the ones who have the most challenging behaviors, are becoming invisible and being left behind. Many of them can't speak for themselves, and so this task falls to their their parents. Do you think that's leading to a widespread misunderstanding about what autism actually is? Well, I think the the reality is that when you don't have when you don't have good descriptors, you don't know how to plan for the needs of individuals. So in the medical world, labels are important and useful when they can describe a clear cluster of symptoms that leads to a basket of interventions, right? And we don't have that now. As you said, we used to have that with the DSM-4, but now we only have we only have one term. So imagine if we only had one term for cancer, right? Like we would never say that someone with testicular cancer should receive the same intervention as someone with breast cancer. And of course not. That would be ridiculous. And, and no one would ever say that, you know, one type of cancer is worse than another type of cancer, just that they're different. And that's, that's what we're saying here. We're not saying that um, high-functioning autism is less 
people with high functioning autism are less in need of interventions than people with profound autism. We're simply saying that their needs are different and that we need to understand uh, how they're different so that we can plan and build capacity for the types of services and supports that different groups of people with autism will need over the course of their lifetime. You mentioned in the essay that Jody's now 24, meaning she was born right around the time that social scientist Judy Singer and journalist Harvey Bloom began using the term neurodiversity, though the concept may go back even further than that. What's your take or your definition of this now highly popular term? So, you know, I think the term neurodiversity has come to define an advocacy group. Um, And I know that this particular faction of individuals with autism spectrum disorder in many ways take issue with the concept of dividing the autism community into what they call functional levels, right? I think they're concerned that defining a small subset of a large population could foster discrimination. And, you know, they say, as as I do, um, that everyone on the spectrum has needs and that no one's needs are more important than anyone else's needs. But as I said, the reason that we need subgroups is because people's needs are different. And by sorting people into more homogeneous groups, um, you know, first we can count how many of them there are, and then we can plan for their needs. So like I said, a a high-functioning person with autism who's able to go to college and who needs workplace accommodations, that person has very different needs than a young adult who has severe intellectual disability, is nonverbal, is aggressive towards, towards others. But if both of those individuals receive the same diagnosis, autism, then you have no idea how to plan for services and supports to help either one of them. So as you said, even though some in the autism community, or as I've seen written, the autisms community, are trying to get away from labels, you're advocating for adopting and using the term profound autism. What do you mean by that? And what do you hope its use will accomplish? So the term profound autism describes individuals who have significant intellectual disability, who are minimally verbal, and who require round-the-clock care to keep them safe, and who likely are going to need supports and services across their lifespan to accomplish daily tasks. And, you know, in reviewing the data sets of people with autism, the new Lancet Commission estimated that almost 50% of the autism population falls into this category. And yet, as I said, we rarely see this population on TV or at the policymaking table. And that what that 50% means is that for every autistic person who's trying to get a job at, at Microsoft, there's also one who is nonverbal and struggling to get through the day without peeling the skin off her arm or biting herself. So, you know, I think, again, we need these more clear subgroups that describe a cluster of symptoms so that we know what types of interventions we should be planning for. You know, when you talked about DSM-4 and when we used to have the term Asperger's, when people heard the word Asperger's, they knew what it meant. When you told someone that you or your husband or um, a friend of yours, a colleague had Asperger's, they, they got an idea in their head of what types of symptoms they were likely to, they should expect. And, and that gave them a clue as to what types of accommodations might be necessary. Of course, again, everyone is an individual, but it, it painted a picture. Right now, when you say, when I say my daughter has autism, 
people expect that she is very high functioning, that she's trying to get a job at Google, that she's a computer programmer. Um, they don't expect that she lives in an intentional community, um, that she's nonverbal, that she can be aggressive, that she can be self-injurious, and that she struggles daily with to, to have her needs met and to make her desires known. And that if she were not able to live in an intentional community where she received supervision 24-7, she would not be able to have the quality of life that she enjoys there. A lot of time and effort and discussion often goes into word choices. Why profound instead of some other adjective? I'm at the Lancet Commission. The group decided that this was the most appropriate name. Um, there were some concerns about the use of the term severe. Um, they I think the term profound had previously been used to describe other types of disorders. The clinicians felt more comfortable with the use of the term profound. To be honest, it didn't really matter to me what term was chosen to recognize this population. It could be profound. It could be severe. I mean, frankly, a lot of adults who fall into this category love watching Sesame Street. Like my daughter, we could have called it Elmo autism. That that doesn't make a difference to me what it's called. The point is that we need a we need a descriptor so that people understand that when you say this person has profound autism or this person has Elmo autism or this person has cooking, whatever it is that you just decide to call it, that it paints a clear picture and that we're able to count the number of people who have it so that we can build capacity for their lifelong needs. So let me explain the Lancet Commission for a second. You're a member of the, I'm going to quote its entire name here, the Lancet Commission on the Future of Care and Clinical Research in Autism. It's one of several commissions assembled by The Lancet, an influential medical journal. How did that come about for you? Well, when they decided to form the commission, uh, Kathy Lord, who is a professor at UCLA, who has worked to study autism for, oh my gosh, I don't want to age her, but probably 30, 40 years. She received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Society of Autism Research, I think. So she is recognized as a global leader and scholar in autism. She was the chair of the Lancet Commission, and she invited me to participate. Uh, this was a very diverse group of participants. We had scientists and researchers from all over the globe representing lower-resourced countries, middle-resourced countries, higher-resourced countries. We had parents on the committee and individuals with autism themselves on the committee. It was really a great group to work with. Yeah. I mean, I, it looked like there were about three dozen people on the, on the commission. Um, and it, it looked like it really spanned the range from uh, people with autism to people researching autism. It, was it interesting? I learned so much uh, from, particularly from the adults with autism and from the scientists who were doing work in lower resource countries, the clinicians who were working with our children in lower resource countries, the struggles they faced, the challenges that they had dealing with their governments. Uh, it was uh, it was truly eye opening. You know, I think in the United States, a lot of times as parents, we say there aren't enough services, there aren't enough supports, but. I mean, compared to what other families are facing in other parts of the world, um, we have it pretty good in, in the United States. I mean, there's still a lot of room for improvement, but I think the focus really has to be on making sure that children everywhere have access to some services, some supports, and on, and on building capacity across the globe so that all children and all families are able to be served. 
Are specific labels for autism, like profound autism, important when trying to get government assistance or aid or accessing affordable care? I think it's critical that we define subgroups of autism so that we can properly plan for the supports and services. And so at least in in the United States, so that Medicaid uh, can properly plan for the types of supports and services. And we need representatives from all of those subgroups to be participating at the policymaking table. I think one thing that has happened as a result of collapsing the diagnosis in, in DSM-5 into one category of autism spectrum disorder is that higher skilled, higher functioning adults uh, with autism spectrum have taken over at the policymaking table. For example, they'll say uh, all, all people with autism should be able to live in the community. And as a policymaker is maybe not so familiar with, with autism, you'd say, of course, all people should live in the community. Yes, we should support policies that enable people with autism to live in the community. But it's not possible for people for every person with autism to live a meaningful life in in the community. My daughter has a much higher quality of life and is much more integrated into the community, living in what's called an intentional community uh, in the Catskills. She lives at the Center for Discovery in Monticello. It's a farming-based community. She raises animals, they grow crops, they sell them in the community. She lives in a house. Uh, with five other adults with autism. They have 24-hour day supervision. They go to Zumba in the community. They, um, She takes a painting class. They go to karaoke. When I take her to Walmart up there, people say, hi, Jody, how are you? You know, every people know her there. Compare that to what self-advocates were fighting for, keeping people with autism living in the community where they, living at home with their parents, uh, where in many cases they spend their day in their parents' basement playing video games. But that person is considered to be living in the community because the neighbors on each side of that house are non-disabled, right? So we had neurodiversity advocates fighting to shut down places like the Center for Discovery, where all over the country where thousands of people with more severe forms of autism, with profound autism, have lived and worked for years simply because they think that they're not adequately adequately integrated into the community and that couldn't be further from the truth. You know, I really think we have to think about community not as a place, but as as a lifestyle. The existence of the subgroups, I think, defines the fact that we need them. If one of these groups was able to advocate for the entire autism spectrum, we the other one would not pop up and, and exist. Since the Lancet report came out on December 6th, have you heard from critics or people who oppose an idea or a, a label of profound autism? There has been strong support uh, for the term profound autism in the scientific community, in the advocacy community of parents whose children fall under the subgroup of profound autism. As I said, there are many people, though, in the neurodiversity community who have taken issue with it and are concerned about the idea of creating subgroups because they feel that it will lead to it will lead to discrimination. They are also concerned, and I, you know, I'm saying they based on what they have posted on our Facebook page and on our Twitter feed. So I'm sort of talking about them in in the aggregate, but they express concerns that if there's too much focus on profound autism, then there won't be enough supports and services left to to meet their needs. And I think they're also concerned that 
somehow we're saying that only the needs of those with profound autism should be met. And that could not be further from the truth. No one thinks that our children with profound autism are the only ones with needs. We we do not have a monopoly on on suffering. Everyone um, on the autism spectrum, I think, has needs. I think every person in society has needs. But the point is not that anyone anyone's needs are more important than anyone else's, but that people's needs are different and that we can't really understand how to plan and build capacity for their needs if we're not properly defining them. If we're not creating homogeneous groups and figuring out how many people will need intentional community living, how many people will need work-based support, how many people are able to have competitive employment if they have some support and some accommodations in the workplace. You know, again, my daughter is never going to be a candidate for competitive employment. She is able to work on the farm uh, and she loves working on the farm. She's able to work. She's able to work growing vegetables and harvesting the vegetables. And um, she works with the chickens and she collects the eggs and they wash the eggs and they weigh and sort the eggs and they sell the eggs in the community and people eat the eggs. And it is a legitimate farm. They they sell what they produce on that farm. She would not be able to work in in a competitive employment um, opportunity. But and we need but we need to be able to know that. Does she enjoy being on the farm? She loves being on the farm. Oh my gosh, my husband says that she is the happiest person in our family. She has loved animals from the time that she was a baby. When we were doing early therapy with her, her reward for working hard in therapy was to go to the pet store and play with the puppies. And now she has turned her love of animals into a vocation, just as typically developing people do. People, you know, I think it's everyone's goal to find something they love and then be able to do that as a job for the rest of their life. And that's what she is able to do at the Center for Discovery because it is an environment set up to meet her high level of need. My guess, and this is just a guess, is that the work that she does at the center doesn't pay for her to live there. Um, is is the center part of the healthcare system, or is that something that you and your family have to pay for, or do you get any kind of uh, medical help from the government, financial help from the government, I mean? The Center for Discovery is an intermediate care facility known as an ICF um, under New York state law, and it receives state support and services. I think there are many members of the neurodiversity community who unfortunately think that people shouldn't live in an intermediate care facility, but that is the environment in which she is able to thrive and be happy. So my three kids went to Boston Public Schools, and one of the schools they attended had a mainstream program for children with autism and various disabilities. You mentioned that Jody was in mainstream programs. How did that work for her? I think my daughter was a mascot in the mainstream. Mainstreaming was completely inappropriate for her. You know, back when she was in public school, mainstreaming was sort of the the way to go. Everyone thought that all people with disabilities should be in the mainstream. And I, I think that was a disservice to her. She really didn't start to to meet her potential until she was in an autism specific school where they used techniques that were appropriate 
for helping her to manage her day. Um, you know, I used to hear from, from the teachers in, in public school that, oh, the other girls held her hand and, and walked her to, to lunch. And I'd say, she's not a puppy, right? Why am I not hearing in parent-teacher conference about what she's achieving academically or about her social skills improving or about her initiating conversations with peers? That never happened when she was in the mainstream the way I was told it could only happen in in the mainstream. That didn't happen until she went to a school with other students with autism. Does every state have schools or, or intermediate care facilities for people with autism like New York does? There are certainly not enough intermediate care facilities for everyone who would like to go to one or who needs to go to one. There is a very long waiting list, unfortunately, for the Center for Discovery and for schools like it all over the country. And again, this is a problem of planning and one that we need to solve through better capacity building. And the only way to know how many people will need to be in places or, or, or may choose to live in intermediate care facilities is by counting them. And the only way to count them is by defining these subgroups. So it's another take on the old saw that you can't change what you don't measure. Exactly. Um, the week we published your essay, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention came out with new statistics about autism in the U.S. They said that one in 44 eight-year-olds in the CDC's Autism and Developmental Disabilities Monitoring Network were identified with autism spectrum disorder compared to one in 54 a year earlier. Did that surprise you? No, I think... I think we are starting to do a better job at identifying autism early and of being able to provide uh, supports and services for people who are showing early signs of autism. I think what that data also showed was that we're doing a better job of identifying uh, children who were previously very much underdiagnosed, uh, Hispanic children, African-American children, children who lived in inner cities or in rural areas. So uh, a lot of that increase is us doing a better job at early screening and at finding uh, children who meet the diagnosis for autism. And it's critical that we do that because uh, the one thing that I think everyone in the autism community agrees on uh, is that early intervention is still the best weapon that we have to prevent the most deleterious symptoms of autism from, from emerging. All children can benefit from early intervention. We, we would like to see children starting to receive early intervention when they first show early signs, even before they're diagnosed with autism, because the, the earlier you intervene, the better the prognosis for children. We published a first opinion in May of 2020 by Feta Almalidi, who wrote about how the pandemic was completely upending life for her son, Muhammad, who has severe autism. And so for her family, and um, what are you hearing from people you talk with about the pandemic and autism? Well, families of children with autism were disproportionately affected by, by the pandemic. I mean, the, the pandemic disrupted everyone's life and everyone's schedule. But when you're dealing with a disability that is specifically related to need for sameness, Okay, all of a sudden, no one's life is in any way the same. The traditional schedules that our children followed of getting up in the morning, eating breakfast, going to school, 
eating lunch in school, spending the afternoon in school, coming home from school, usually having therapy in the afternoon or going to an activity. All of that was lost. Now, all of a sudden, after getting used to those routines, our kids were told, no, you're going to stay home all day uh, and your teacher's going to be on a screen. Okay, our our kids are used to -to one-to-one with spending time with a special education teacher who is highly trained, able to keep them focused and on task. Uh, and now we were ha- now our kids were supposed to interact and learn over a screen. It was almost impossible. Uh, we heard from so many families who told us that their kids didn't get any uh, time with a special education teacher from their school. We heard from families who said their child had to go to the hospital and they couldn't accompany them to the hospital. Imagine sending a child with intellectual disability and autism into a strange situation and hooking them up to medical devices. I I cannot even begin to imagine what that was like for that family that was separated from their child with autism who they thought had COVID. That that was beyond. Uh, Sometimes when you say we, I think you're talking about the Autism Science Foundation. What prompted you to start that? I started the Autism Science Foundation because of experience that experiences that I had had with my daughter and, and the medical community. So I was originally, uh, before my di- my daughter was diagnosed, I was a television news producer. I worked at NBC and I was a volunteer in the autism community as soon as she was diagnosed. And then I, I made the decision to take on autism advocacy professionally. And, and the reason was because I didn't think enough time and money was focused on research and science so many doctors that I would take her to said, uh, oh, you should put her on Prozac. And I'd say, oh, oh, what's the underlying biological mechanism that's going to be targeted by the Prozac? And, you know, they'd sort of look at me and they'd sort of smile and they'd say, well, I don't know, might make her feel better. And and maybe you should take some. (laughs) So, you know, that was that was so not okay. That is not the way that we treat a medical condition. So I said, we have to be able to do better. My daughter is not a guinea pig. Her peers are not guinea pigs. They don't deserve to just have medication being thrown at them with no understanding of how it might work. Um, And these are medications that were not specific to autism symptoms. These were medications that were designed for, for other things. So I felt that we need to take a much more uh, rigorous approach to the way we treat autism, um, both pharmaceutically and also with behavioral interventions. There were also so many at that time um, interventions that were thrown at parents. We were told if you give your kids mega doses of vitamins, if you give them infusion of pig hormone, if you put uh, electromagnets under their mattress, all these things could magically cure their autism. Uh, Epsom salt baths, um, camel milk. It had to be unpasteurized camel milk. It couldn't be regular camel milk, unpasteurized only. It, it was ridiculous. You know how when I saw how many charlatans were trying to take advantage of parents who were only eager to do everything they possibly could to try to make their kids' lives better. That just bothered me at my core. Um, and so I, I decided to form the Autism Science Foundation. Um, and we're an organization founded by parents and scientists working together. Traditionally, you have scientific organizations or you have parent-based organizations. But the Autism Science Foundation was founded by scientists and parents who wanted to work together to improve opportunities for people with autism. I, I really appreciate your talking with me today. 
Thank you for the work you're doing to champion people living with autism who can't advocate for themselves. Well, thank you for helping to shine a, a bright spotlight spotlight on this on this issue. You know, our kids are have been in the dark for so long, and I really appreciate the Lancet Commission for saying that this is a population uh, that needs to be that needs more focus, that more time, attention, and resources need to be focused on on people with profound autism because they recognize that their needs are not being met. So, thank you again for for covering this important topic. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show, or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.